0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of She Rises. I am Giovanna Capoza, your host for today and always. And I'm here today with Julie M. Simon. She is a licensed psychotherapist and life coach with more than 27 years of experience helping overeaters stop dieting, heal their relationships with themselves and their bodies and lose excess weight and keep it off. She is the author of When Food is Comfort and the Emotional Eater's Repair Manual. She founded the popular Los Angeles-based and online 12-week emotional eating recovery program and offers workshops at venues like Whole Foods and UCLA. She lives in Los Angeles and you can find out more about her at www.overeatingrecovery.com. Well, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that this topic of food and emotional eating and even food addiction is a topic near and dear to my heart. So I'm really pleased to have another guest on the show who's going to be enlightening us on this topic. And more so because the topic near and dear to my heart that ties along with this is this idea that I have, really, that being an adult here now (laughs) is really the journey about learning to reparent ourselves. And at the core and the heart of any eating issue and even addiction, is this toxic sort of relationship we have to ourselves and our inner critic. And this internal voice, really, that is battering us most of our lives and when we make mistakes. And really, it's a matter of what Julie calls an issue of being dysregulated. In other words, not able to regulate our own difficult emotions and the things that come up day to day. If we haven't been taught that, we need to start teaching it to ourselves and, and as she says, rewiring our brain. And it is possible And this episode's super fascinating and amazing. The book again is called When Food is Comfort. And I can't wait to dive into this. Let me know what you think in the show notes on the comments page at sherisespodcast.com. And I really, really hope you get a lot from this show. Enjoy. Hey, Julie, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have you on, as I mentioned in our show intro, and I'm sure the audience knows by now, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I'm an Italian woman, you know, born and raised, and I almost feel like my mom named this book, but coming from a totally different angle, (laughs) which is probably where some of my food issues came from in the way, you know she used to present food to us. So I'm excited to have you here because it means we get to continue this conversation around food and nurturing and emotional eating. So welcome, welcome. I'm just happy for you to be here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here with you. Yeah. So I am always forever curious about the story behind how it is that you arrived at this topic that you teach in this book. And I'd love if you'd share that with the audience.
1: Yes, you know, I think the best place to start is kind of like for many of us when we're young girls, and certainly boys struggle with this too. But I'll speak especially to girls. You know that in our puberty years, you know we're very much consumed with how we look, and oftentimes we're we've got a little pudge during those years, and and that's where it started for me. And I'll never forget a comment that my father said to me when I was eating a stack of Oreo cookies. And he said, you know, if if you keep eating like that, you're going to have thighs like your mother, right? Oh, and that was kind of the first time I had really kind of taken in, you know, hearing him, you know, his opinion of her thighs, right, and putting me in that category, and her thighs were large, and she was forever dieting. And that really stuck with me. And it also stuck with me years later when I thought about it. And I thought, you know, he didn't, really offer me any help. He just basically kind of shamed me for what I was doing and for how I was going to be looking. But, you know, it's an example of a time period where for girls and boys, you know, we're really concerned with our bodies and we start to, the culture starts to kind of Reinforce that messaging, and so I started you know in my teens, I started dieting, my mother was a perennial dieter, my sister, who's older, was a dieter, and so you know my mother was saying i'll put you on a diet and you so all the messaging around me was and p s by the way i don 't think I had more than five extra pounds on my body, you know but the messaging was lose weight, you know thin is best, and kind of started me down a road of constantly being obsessed with my body, dieting. I wasn't very good at dieting, so then I was always overeating and gaining the weight back. And so basically, I spent a good portion of my life, I spent my teen years and then into my 20s and and later, just stuck in a cycle of overeating comfort foods, gaining weight, and then dieting. And what I came to understand over time, because I was always very interested in Our bodies and psychology. And I was always interested in this issue of weight because it didn't make any sense to me. Why is it that so many of us, and back then as well, so many of us are struggling with our weight? How could we be designed that way? You know, how could it be that we have to weigh and measure everything we eat, that we have to, you know, monitor our calories and our carbs and our fat grams? And our ancestors didn't do that. Animals in the wild don't do that, they maintain their weight in an optimum range. So I thought, something is so wrong with this whole picture. And I thought, you know, I've got to find the pieces to this weight, overeating, dieting puzzle. And I did. I set out to do that. And over time, I found all the pieces, the mind, the body, and the spirit pieces that underlie or the imbalances, if you will, that underlie our our use of food. And so what I came to understand was that I was an emotional eater and I had entered adulthood Missing many very basic self-care skills, like the ability to move through unpleasant emotional states, comfort and soothe myself, reframe self-defeating thoughts, redirect impulses and behaviors, regulate my nervous system. So I was missing skills. I also had inherited body and brain imbalances, mood disorder, and an attraction because of that mood disorder and attraction to chemicals that lifted me like caffeine and particular foods like sugar and flour. And I also had some spiritual imbalances. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I, at that point in time, and I, you know, was feeling purposeless in certain ways. And so there was an inner emptiness and a restlessness that was fueling my eating. So I was on a quest to figure out all those pieces of the puzzle. And I pulled them all together over many years, uh, study, you know, visits to healthcare practitioners. And then I knew that, you know, I wanted to do this. Uh, I knew this was my calling. I wanted to help women and men, you know, really
0: resolve their relationship with food and their bodies. So much of what you said resonates personally with me, especially all the different ways and the different levels in which, You said the word out of balance, and that's how you began to sort of use food to, you know, emotionally soothe or comfort. And it's interesting, the story you told about your father, it's like, I, I think everyone I've spoken to has some sort of story like that. And I joked initially about my mother in the beginning, but really my mother's, you know, famous line, and if it wasn't spoken, it was definitely unspoken, was eat something, you'll feel better. (laughs) So, (laughs) so it was ingrained that food was comfort just from that it's like that was the tool to use and and it became the tool to find comfort and some level of nurturing and it's just it's so so deeply embedded in our psyche from from very young so it's very it's really hard to escape
1: yes and you know especially like when your mother says you know eat something you'll feel better basically what she's telling you is that you know she has no skills for attuning this is what we call it attunement attuning to your internal world and then helping you process through those emotions and and whatever bodily sensations Mm -hmm. are coming up so she's missing those skills and so what she's doing is she's attempting to offer external comfort you know in the form of food and so clearly I mean you know a child who's missing those skills is not going to automatically you know skills don't automatically pop into your skill set you can't just look at a guitar and be a good player you know so if your caregivers are missing those skills and they and your caregivers may be very well-intentioned very loving very kind I have so many people who I work with who came from very kind caring parents I even have a chapter in my book that's called yes but I had great parents because, (laughs) (laughs) because over the years I've had so many people say to me you know, how could this go back to my childhood? My parents were loving, they were kind, they were caring. Well, first of all, it's not about blaming parents. It's really just about finding out what happened. But even well-intentioned, very caring parents can be missing self-care skills that they never got in their childhood. And so they don't know how to attune to your emotional states. They don't know how to attune to your thoughts. They don't know how to help you identify your needs and move through all of that. And so because they're missing all those skills, they just rush to bake you cookies. And That's
0: right.
1: <laughs> and you never learn those skills.
0: Yeah. And it seems, you know, benign and loving and oftentimes it is, and yet, you know, it's what you spoke to earlier, so many of us have this issue and why is that? And so it is a question of of nurture and not nature because we were designed to you know, burn excess fat. That's the only reason we were supposed to store it, right? And the only reason that we're supposed to eat is for fuel. And so there's all these ways in which you know, the influences on our psyche at an early age have just totally detoured us from what we naturally are meant to do, which leads me into self-regulation. And you talk a lot about that in your book. And I wonder if you would break that down for us a little bit.
1: Yeah, well, you know, that's the bottom line is that what's happening with anyone. So you think about all of the you know, people say to me, Oh, I don't think I really have a problem with food. It's really just that there's too much processed food everywhere. Or so people will say, I don't think it's me. Okay. And really, if you stop and think about it, why, if there's processed food everywhere, if there's addictive drugs everywhere. There's alcohol. You can buy it on every corner. There's caffeine everywhere. There's cigarettes. There's marijuana is now dispensed everywhere. You know, if all of that is around, why isn't everyone addicted, right? Right. So we know that there's got to be some difference between people who get addicted to these substances and people who don't. And so some people will say, well, I just have an addictive personality. Okay. But we still want to look deeper. Like, what is it that is consistent across all addictions? And what we see that's consistent is that what's really important for the brain formation is, is the kind of nurturance, the consistency, the sufficiency and consistency of the nurturance we get when our brain is forming, okay? And so, people that struggle with addiction did not get consistent and sufficient emotional nurturance in their early years. And again, it doesn't mean their caregivers weren't kind and loving. It just means their caregivers were missing skills. So those who come from that kind of parenting or caregiving are going to have trouble regulating their behaviors, are going to have trouble mastering the skill of self-regulation. So what does self-regulation mean? It refers to our ability to manage our emotions and moods to also manage our bodily uh, sensations and even our bodily functions, right? Like hold our bladder and, you know, we're really regulating, regulate our nervous system, control or redirect our disruptive impulses and behaviors, and think before we act. And so, in order for us to master this skill, the upstairs logical and soothing part of the brain needs to be well connected or properly wired to the emotional brain. And this happens when we have consistent and sufficient emotional nurturing when we're young because as we begin to express our emotions, even when we're just a little baby, when we're a baby, we don't have any labels for our emotions. So we just cry because we feel tension in our body. And our mommy swoops in and she, if our mommy is tuned in, she's going to know the difference between a cry that says, my diaper is wet versus a cry that says, I'm hungry. Right. And even for people listening who maybe don't have children, maybe they've had animals, you get to know your animals' cries. Like, I remember one cat that I had, I knew a particular cry that, and that cry was, I've got a fur ball and I'm going to throw up soon.
0: <laughs> I know that one. You know I that cry? Heard, I just heard it last week.
1: <laughs> right. And there was one time when that cat came in and she had a loud, long meow. And I was like, uh, I don't know what that one is. And she was very sick and I rushed her to the doctor. But you get to know when you're attuned, you know the different cries of a baby of, you know, of any species, (laughs) you know, that you're taking care of. And so a well-attuned caregiver tunes in, swoops in, and with her words and her behaviors and her tone and her eyes, she comforts her baby and she communicates to her baby that the world is safe. And when you have emotions, somebody pays attention to them. Now as the baby grows into a little toddler and starts to have labels for emotions, mommy is still going to swoop in little kids going to hit her head on a table and mommy's going to swoop in and she's going to comfort and soothe and use her words and her behaviors. And then she's even going to use her language to teach as for a teaching moment to maybe say corners of tables are sharp, you know, best not to crawl around them. So this is what good attunement is. And, and as she's doing that, she's starting to not only regulate the baby and as the child is growing, co-regulate the child, but she's teaching the child the world of labels for their emotions. She's telling the child it's okay to have all these emotions. She's saying that someone will be there when you have them and pay attention to them. And she's teaching the child that emotions point us, they're like street signs, they point us in the direction of our needs. So if, you know, a cry is, I'm hungry, you know, that, that alerts caregivers to provide food. So it's critical that our caregivers are tuning in. They need to be well tuned into themselves and they need to be well tuned in to us. And if they are, we're going to connect those structures in the brain, the self-soothing, regulating part of the brain that helps us regulate our behaviors with that emotional part that says, you know, oh my God, I see a Cinnabon. I must have it now, right? Now, if those structures are working, we're going to be able to say, hold on, we've had a lot of sugar this week. Probably best if we don't go get it, right? If those structures aren't working, and especially if we're under stress, we're going to have that emotional brain kicking out Cinnabon, Cinnabon, get a Cinnabon, you know, I'm hungry, I need a Cinnabon. And we're not going to be able to access any logical part of the brain that can regulate our behaviors because it's not connecting well.
0: Mm, Thank you. You almost answered my next question because I was going to ask, you know, as adults, how can we sort of, you know, diagnose, let's say, what are the symptoms that we are dysregulated? And I love that Cinnabon example because I think I've had the moment where it's like, you know, you're hangry and you just have to eat something now. And so what other symptoms are there for people listening that can kind of check in and say, oh gosh, like that's me, I do that.
1: Well, I'll give you an example of, in my book, I have a an emotional eating checklist. And so the checklist is a good way to identify, you know, when you are probably dysregulated, you know, what might be causing the dysregulation? So for example, you might be turning to to food as a tranquilizer to dull emotions that are difficult to cope with. So maybe you're experiencing anxiety, anger. These are emotions that dysregulate us. Anxiety, anger, sadness, frustration, hopelessness, loneliness, shame, guilt, and even happiness, excitement, and joy is dysregulating for some people. You might Use food when to calm yourself when you're experiencing unpleasant bodily sensations, so agitation, nervousness, or muscle tension might be dysregulating for you. I was talking to a client the other day, and she was saying, You know, I'm realizing that when I come home, I need to not look at the news or social media, she said, because it agitates me so much that then I go to the kitchen and I just like stuff my face.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) so. The news is causing agitation, and because she doesn't know how to handle the agitation, she goes to eat. You may be turning to food for soothing and comfort. You may be turning to food for pleasure, escape, fulfillment, and excitement. You know, maybe you eat when you're stressed out, so stress is a trigger. Perhaps you're using food to silence negative, critical, self-defeating thoughts and quiet your mind, so your thoughts are dysregulating you. And for many of us, we know how that can happen. Someone says something, something happens, and then we're like all in a tizzy, and we're our body and our brain, our thinking, everything's dysregulated. Perhaps you eat when you're overwhelmed. Overwhelm is a real rough state for most of us, and we often feel paralyzed when we're overwhelmed. Perhaps you eat to distract yourself from mo- low motivation states like boredom or lethargy or apathy. Many emotional eaters eat when they're bored because. Boredom is dysregulating them. You might eat as a way to procrastinate. Perhaps you eat because your life lacks purpose, meaning, passion, and inspiration. So, spiritual depletion. You might eat because you're filling up an inner emptiness with food. Maybe you have a lot of regret about your life, and regret or grief is dysregulating for you. Maybe you're rebelling against someone or something. Maybe you're using food to reward or punish yourself. Maybe you're using food because you feel safe when you feel full. So you feel a lack of safety in the world and that dysregulates you, right? So you can
0: see how all of these Mm, these triggers, right? For me, one of the things that I sort of am starting to catch myself and I've been kind of using this exercise for a few years is – Noticing when I'm sort of unconsciously eating, or it's becoming almost like compulsive, like I'm just reaching for stuff. And I normally, in that moment, the way I can catch it is I I sort of stop and say, Okay, I'm not hungry, but I'm reaching for food. What's going on? Right. And it always is one of those things you said. I'm bored. I'm overwhelmed. I'm anxious. I just had a long day. I'm rewarding myself. You know, I'm somehow lacking pleasure in my life. So this is how I'm getting pleasure. It's always, always one of those things. And again, it's, if I can be conscious enough in the moment, sometimes I was, I told this story on another episode, I'm sort of halfway through, almost halfway through of writing my memoir. And I was just, it was the upheaval of of grief that was coming up around my mom's death. I didn't even have a conscious awareness of how deep it was until I found myself literally, it was just before, actually it was before the Mother's Day weekend. I was just eating and eating and eating and stuff I didn't normally like ever eat. And I had to stop. And I mean, I think it lasted a whole day before I was like, wait a second, what am I doing? (laughs) So sometimes I can catch it right away. And sometimes, you know, it takes a little while. And in your book, I love that you explore this whole idea of rewiring these habits and rewiring your brain. And that fascinates me to no end because it, well, A, makes me feel hopeful, and B, it feels empowering to know like, oh, I can fix the quote unquote damage that was done in my childhood. So I wonder if you could tell us a little more about that.
1: Yeah. And just one comment on what you were saying, you know, it's so interesting, the kind of proof of how it really is more about skills that, you know, when you're talking about, you know, grabbing food and eating kind of unconsciously, I remember through college, and probably even a little bit into grad school, my first graduate program you know, I couldn't kind of get through finals or exams without eating my, you know, eating my brains out, you know, just overeating (laughs) and constantly overeating. I had to eat, overeat when I was studying. And such a perfect example to me was when I was writing my first book. And that was kind of the first time again in my life that I was, you know, doing that kind of intensive writing type of work, you know, since my schooling. And I never turned to food and I encountered overwhelm and frustration and, you know, all kinds of states that one goes through when you're writing a book, but never once turned to food during it. And so it was such a perfect example to me of what recovery looks like that I no longer needed, you know, every time I felt overwhelmed by, you know, oh, gosh, I've just finished one chapter and I've got 26 more to go. (laughs)
0: You know, (laughs) I know what that feels like, (laughs) or I've just
1: thought I had that chapter nailed and now I've realized I totally don't like it and I've got to just toss it and start over. You know, just all that level of frustration. What is so critical is that I think when I was younger in those years when I would turn to food, I didn't have inside of me a soothing, comforting, nourishing voice that could regulate me, and that's to a large extent what this new book is about. It's about a mindfulness practice, but really learning how to access, develop, and strengthen an inner supportive voice and so, for example, when I was writing my first book, I think overwhelm was a constant companion every single day overwhelm and a little bit of paralysis with it, and lots of frustration. So when I would get overwhelmed or when I would think, "Oh gosh, I, you know I still have so many more chapters to write, and you know so many weekends to spend writing, and I have a very well-developed, what I call inner nurturer, who would come in and say, you know, sweetie, most important thing is for us to just focus on this one chapter. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. You know, we're going to take it slow and we're going to, you know, we're going to move at a pace that's comfortable. There's no rush. You know, my inner nurturer would remind me that spirit or whatever you want to call it moves through me. And so something is writing the book with me and through me. And so it's not so hard. To do, and and there's a lot of joy in it. So, I had this part of me that would always step in and regulate. And so, when we talked about earlier about attunement and how the mommy swoops in and tunes into our states and nurtures and comforts us and helps us identify our emotions and move through them, if we didn't get that when we were young, even if our parents and caregivers were kind and loving, if we didn't get that, we're going to need to learn how to do that for ourselves. So if we didn't get external attunement when we were young and it didn't wire our brain in the way we need it to be wired, the wonderful news is that now we can do that for ourselves. And it's not a quick fix and it takes time. It is what I call a forever fix. So we can learn to tune in to our emotional states access a supportive voice that helps us through them so it's kind of like we're dialoguing you know so that youngest part of us says ah I hate this chapter and I've got so many more to do and I thought that I would have it done today and now it's not done and you know I'm getting dysregulated and then in swoops a nurturing voice a part of us that says okay okay I see you I hear you I know you're very upset right now and maybe she validates it's okay to be upset. It makes sense to be frustrated. You thought you had it nailed and now it's probably four more hours on this. But I'm here with you and it's okay and we're going to get through this and we have time allocated in our budget of time, you know, for these kind of errors. I know you're frustrated. I know it's frustrating. Maybe if we just take a break for an hour, maybe we just put it away for today and we'll start back tomorrow. So we have this voice that's regulating us and helping us move through emotional states. This is what's missing for emotional eaters. And in my belief, this is what's missing for all addicts. This voice is not well developed. The skills that go with this voice, the ability to stay with and process through our emotions, to identify our bodily sensations and stay with them, to identify our needs, You know, when I feel frustrated, I need. When I feel overwhelmed, I need. When I feel scared, I need. So the ability to move through our emotions, our bodily sensations, get clear on our needs, to access, catch and reframe our self-defeating thoughts. So maybe I have a thought like, I'm never gonna get this book done. I used I had a thought when I was writing my first book, I kept having this thought that was like, I'm not a writer. I'm not a writer you know? because oh, and I would also have a thought, I hate writing, I hate writing, which aren't very helpful thoughts when you're writing a book. No, <laughs> and so I would catch them. And when I would say, I'm not a good writer, then my inner nurture would come in and say, You know, sweetie, in fact, you are a pretty good writer, you just don't enjoy the process of you know, fleshing out chapters and things, but you actually are a pretty good writer, and so. Catching and reframing some of those self defeating thoughts, learning how to highlight our strengths and resources to say, you know what, you are a pretty good writer. And you have, you know, people that you know that can read the copy and tell you if it needs a little fixing. You have resources, you have internal strengths. That inner nourishing voice will provide hope. I know we're going to get this done. I know it's going to be good, right? And that voice also helps set, set limits on us and helps us meet our needs so maybe that voice says you know if you're thinking while you're writing your book maybe you think oh gosh I can't do this you know I need to go get cookies right I, I just have to have cookies and maybe that voice says you know I don't know that cookies are necessarily going to help us I'm wondering what you're feeling right now that you're needing to go get those cookies and then maybe you say well I'm really feeling frustrated and overwhelmed. I'm really feeling sad about mom right now. And that's why I'm feeling like I want the cookies. And so maybe that inner nurturing voice morphs into a limit setting voice and says, you know what, sweetie, let's not go have the cookies. But how about if we put the writing down and maybe we just go sit and have a cup of tea and allow ourselves to feel some of the sadness right now, some of the longing for her.
0: Because That's really ultimately the- it, right? Is want to feel the feelings that are underneath there, and I love the way. I mean, I love this whole notion of dialoguing. There's an exercise that I was taught years ago by a coach that I now give to my clients around dialoguing with that little you, literally on paper. Like you know, little you says this, you know, big you says this, and it is what you mentioned there. It's getting, it's catching it is the key, right? It's catching it and so that it doesn't go unconscious, and then allowing the space for it. And for you to become the parent, I think I've said it 700 times on my show that I believe one of our primary responsibilities as adult is to learn to reparent ourselves. <laughs> so I, I love this notion of having this conversation. And I know for me personally, when I can catch it, and I, it's becoming, like you said, it's an exercise. This is not like you just, it doesn't just come, you know, you have to practice. But when I do catch it and I'm able to have that conversation with myself, it's much kinder than the conversation I have with myself post cookie eating, which is, you know, goes into a whole other arena that needs to be soothed as well from the internal adult. But no, it, I think that's so yeah.
1: true. I think that's so true. And I, what I have found in nearly 30 years of, doing this with people of working with overeaters is that they resist the practice there's a lot of resistance to practicing this nourishing voice and having these dialogues the resistance is because that voice feels awkward because they don't have a kind supportive nurturing voice and that's why in my both my first book and my second book I give pages of languaging for people to use, because what I found in running my, I have a 12-week emotional eating recovery program that I run, and what I found, you know, 25 years ago, is that people were missing the language. They hadn't been raised by caregivers who talked to them in a nurturing way, many of them, and so they were missing the languaging of how do you talk to yourself in a loving and kind way. Most of them, almost every emotional eater I've ever worked with, has a very well-developed inner critic. Mm -hmm. And I would hear them say things like, I hate myself, or I hate my fat body, or, you know, I'm lazy, I'm undisciplined, I'm never going to get my act together. I don't know what's wrong with me. This is how they would talk to themselves. And when I would ask them to try in my live groups, we'll use like a stuffed animal, and I'll have them hold the stuffed animal, and I'll say, could you talk to her? Like she's a very young part of yourself and nurture her. And they'll kind of hold her away from the body and they'll kind of give her a lecture, you know, like, well, you know, you can do it and, you know, it'll be okay. That's <laughs> very mechanical, yeah. right? <laughs> it's very mechanical. And I'll say to them, you know, I'm wondering if you could like pull her a little closer and that feels kind of like a lecture you're giving her. It doesn't, and I'll ask the group, like, does that feel nurturing for most of you? I'll say, no, it kind of feels like a lecture. And we'll, we'll actually observe that people are having trouble being kind and nurturing and soothing. They've they haven't had enough exposure to that languaging. And so they have to learn the languaging. And what happens is that as they learn it, and I have little tips and tools I give in the book saying we like, you know, I'm here with you and we can get through this together, you know, making it like there's someone there with you that's nurturing and kind. And when people start to get the hang of it, then they stop resisting it and they start to see that it is shifting something. It's building something. What I found in my own journey, my own journey was long before I knew the neuroscience behind this. What was happening was that I was rewiring my brain by accessing a voice and practicing that kind of nurturing voice. I was rewiring my brain. And the good news was is that that voice took over. So now all I have in my head is this kind, loving, nurturing voice. I have a critic, but it is only constructive. You know, it tells me gee, maybe you should have gotten up a little bit earlier, you know, to get to that meeting on time or, but I don't have a harsh inner critic anymore. And that literally is because I rewired my brain and everyone can rewire their brain. The key is going to be the practice, the practicing of these kind of dialogues.
0: Absolutely. Because like you said, it doesn't come naturally. And even I have to say, you know, the part in the book, uh, one of the parts in the book that you're referring to in terms of communicating unconditionally, when I was reading some of them out loud, like even just the first one, you know, it makes sense that you're feeling this way. Like I got a bit choked up because I was like, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't talk to myself this way. And it's, it's so valuable to have the verbiage. I'm really glad that you included this in there because it, it can be clunky if you've never been spoken to that way, let alone spoken to yourself that way. So I absolutely love this. I, I'm i astounded we're already at time. It just has gone by so, so quickly. For those of you listening, I hope you got a lot out of this conversation. The book is called When Food is Comfort, Nurturing Yourself Mindfully, Rewire Your Brain and End Emotional Eating. And it really does feel from this conversation and from what I've read of the book so far that that feels like more and more of a reality. I have to say from, you know, a fellow emotional eater that it has sometimes felt sort of like, God, is this ever going to change? And this is is very hopeful and really, you know, it speaks to my nerdy girl brain and I love that. So (laughs) thank you so much for being here on the show, Julie, and for writing this book and, and your previous book and the work that you do. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having
1: me. It's my pleasure.